0: Good afternoon from the KLX studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show.
1: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on today's show, Sharks and Beauty.
1: In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Albert Harrison who will talk about science, religion, and folklore.
0: So stay tuned for all this.
1: Plus the Grokatron 5000.
0: And the world famous question of the week.
1: Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Rocks.
0: Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And
1: I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of mass media entertainment.
0: Brad Pitt, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's sort of a saccharine taste, I think. So, do you consider yourself beautiful? can only tell by the shocked gasps of people who first meet me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> shocked in a good way, I
1: guess. Uh, well, okay, sure.
0: <laughs> so, have you ever wondered why we're not all beautiful?
1: <laughs> to me, everyone is beautiful.
0: You're a universal man, man. So, we can all be Brad Pitt. Some species, females, usually go for the most attractive males, right? Especially, for example, say, peacocks. Uh, they want to go with the males with the longest tails. Humans, everyone wants to go for Brad Pitt.
1: Well, uh, this isn't this because physical beauty is sort of an outward manifestation of physical health.
0: Right. The immune system, etc., right. etc. Cetera, et cetera. Turns out that if that was really the case, then all males should be equally attractive and there, in fact, would not be any sexual selection.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So biologists call this the lek paradox. The lek is defined as a group of males congregated for a mating. And conclusions, they had no variation. You wouldn't get evolution. And so a team of British scientists think they may have found why this paradox occurs in what they term as the uh, DNA repair kits. Okay. So this is loosely a set of molecular processes that prevent damage done to your cells' DNA under normal conditions, and so genetic mutations. A lot of times these mutations could be harmful, cancer could occur, but other times uh, it could make you even stronger, give you better defenses to the environment. So these mutations that affect the actual repair process seems to result in greater diversity of the population and that greater diversity outweighs the decrease in diversity solely from sexual selection. He's arguing that evolutionary there's an advantage to have this diversity and that's why not all beautiful.
1: Right, so basically the beauty correlates with the other factors that also can be selected at. Right. So uh, does he mention if any particular species are more prone to having beautiful offspring than others?
0: Uh, no, he says this is something that we see in uh, almost all species, species, animals, Why? birds. And this is work carried out by Marion Petrie of Newcastle University, and it was reported in Life Science. <laughs>
1: So, what's your favorite seafood?
0: I like yellowtail.
1: Yellowtail—that's yes. a very fine choice.
0: Has the right amount of richness, but not overpowering.
1: Well, I will see if we have any of that in stock, but we may not because the sharks are missing. The sharks are missing. Yes.
0: i, I thought that's a good thing though, because <laughs> then they won't eat up all the fish, right?
1: Uh, well, but you need them to actually eat the predators of some of these fish and uh, marine life. Okay. So it turns out that a group of researchers led by marine biologist Julia Baum of Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, has looked at records of marine life over the past 35 years, and she's seen that dramatic decrease in the number of sharks because of overfishing has led to an increase in the number of lesser predators such as cano's ray.
0: How about humans? Sharks like to eat humans as well, you know.
1: If we learn nothing from Jaws, it's don't go in the water. (laughs) Uh, But this is actually quite troubling because these cow nose rays actually disturb grass populations where crabs and other marine life grow, and they also threaten populations of bay scallops and oysters, and have actually led to the uh, loss of North Carolina's century old bay scallop fisheries. It had been thought for quite some time that marine life was diverse enough that it could cope with large declines in some species but this suggests that you know removing a member of the web actually has very deleterious effects throughout the web
0: so let's genetically engineer these race so that they'll die off but i guess this will probably bring another host of problems that we haven't foreseen then
1: but nevertheless very okay, nuclear bombs yeah <laughs> Although the results are very profound, according to one marine scientist Kenneth Frank of the Bedford Institute, people's appetites for oysters, clam, and scallop might also be having a very large effect on their decline. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's going to be tough to tease those factors apart, but definitely remains to be studied some more. So this was a very fascinating result. It was published in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Albert Harrison will join us to discuss science, religion, and folklore. So stay tuned. Back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, in this era of rapidly expanding scientific knowledge, reconciling our past worldview with new information becomes exceedingly challenging. Well, how do we interpret new scientific findings and make them cohere with our past beliefs? Joining us today on the Grok's Science Show is Professor Albert Harrison. Professor Harrison is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of California at Davis. He has worked with both the City Commission and NASA, author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, including Spacefaring, the Human Dimension. And his new book is Starstruck, Cosmic Visions in Science, Religion, and Folklore, which explores these issues for a broad audience. Professor Harrison, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Oh, thank you for inviting me.
1: Uh, well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think it's a very fascinating book. Clearly, I think in this era where uh, knowledge is expanding very rapidly, how do people try and cope with all this information?
2: I think that people develop certain kinds of cognitive intellectual frameworks and then they interpret these findings within these frameworks. They may be uh, very scientific, the way all of us think of it. They may be more of a religious type of framework, or it may be something that's very idiosyncratic or out of popular culture. Folklore in my book, is kind of code in a way for UFOs, abductions, uh, these kinds of beliefs. I think that there's a number of forces driving this. One some people may not have heard of, it's called the idea of cosmic evolution. The idea that we're becoming larger, more complex, more consciousness uh, arising, a greater culture, of these kinds of things. This is important because it makes us think in new ways about consciousness and connectedness with one another and with the universe. The second is astrobiology and SETI, the scientific search for extraterrestrial life. All the new findings about planets, none of which seem to match Earth, but the findings coming in all the time. More and more evidence life may be common within the universe. And then a third one is space exploration. the kind of back burner now. We're not very excited about, most people aren't very excited about things like the International Space Station, but certainly a return to the moon and a trip to Mars are on the drawing board. And the final one that I'll mention is planetary defense. People say, oh boy, you know, you're interested in uh, what to do when the saucers come. I'm sorry, just what do we do when the asteroids and comets come? And so all of these topics that drive people's curiosity and feed lots of documentary TV programs and other things, I think what they're doing is that they're forcing us to think about things in new ways and to come to grips with the idea that we're really citizens of the universe, not just citizens of planet Earth.
1: Probably the one that has captured a lot of people's imagination, of course, is the second one you mentioned, which is astrobiology and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. How really do people try and reconcile that with the vision of themselves as being alone in the universe?
2: You'll find a number of people, myself included, that think that in some ways city can be practiced very, very scientifically. But in a way, it does get at issues of being alone or connected and a sense of uh, there's more out there than meets the eye. That We are not alone. We're not the only planet. We're not the only conscious species. We're not even the only technologically advanced species. And I think that there's a lot of daydreaming and wish in terms of what they might be like. Uh, can we get in touch with them? What might we learn from them if we, if we were able to do this? You see, what's happened with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is conducted by microwave observation. Big microwave dishes scanning the skies for signs of intelligence out there. So developed hand-in-hand with technology. So the uh, rate and pace of the search are accelerating every year. I think I mentioned in my book that at this point, the equivalent of several years of past-year searches can be done in, you know, a year, a month, whatever. One of the most exciting developments, of course, is the Allen Telescope Array, located near Mount Lassen in California, where there's a series of dishes, a uh, telescope farm, you might say, that's being assembled uh, that can be dedicated to conducting searches for extraterrestrial microwave transmissions. There's 42 dishes right now, and the goal is to have 350 So, what you see now is the real expansion of the search. You also see it uh, extending into other areas. One of the areas that's grown in recent years is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence by looking for, by optical means, looking for laser pulses. Very difficult, very time consuming, but just quite possible we might be able to detect signs of intelligence that way. And the third one that I'll just very briefly mention, whereas it's not the same as radio or lasers, is various kinds of imaging techniques that we'll be able to use to identify planets at great distance, conduct essentially assays or analyses of their atmospheres and look for signs of biology, biological activity, or industrial activity. So it's an extremely exciting field, and my interpretation is, and many other people's, is that we're getting closer and closer, but ET is still a hypothesis, not a proven but the evidence that's rolling in suggests that we're maybe not alone in the universe.
1: Well, certainly based on, what is it, the famous Drake equation, one would presume that intelligence must exist out there, right?
2: Well, the Drake equation is actually a convenient way of looking at the physical, biological, and societal factors that can lead to civilization arising and persevering over a great period of time. Very interesting. It's very exciting. If you, once you start plugging numbers in, it gets a little more complicated. And if you look at what people come up with, that there's billions of civilizations out there or we're the only one so there's a lot of guesswork but boy some of the new new findings for example i think we're up to what 240 planets or something at this point we're moving things along and, and seem quite consistent with some of the optimistic kinds of projections as you can tell my bias is i'm optimistic i i'm a psychologist i fancy myself a, a scientist I try to uh, separate wish and fact, but my my wish, you might say, is that we will find uh, some other entities out there that we can communicate and maybe even make friends with. Hmm.
1: Uh, One of your other books was called After Contact, the uh, Human Response to Extraterrestrial Life. How do you think humans would respond to maybe such a discovery? Well,
2: we we have to look at the short-term kinds of impact and the long-term kinds of impact And one of the things that amuses me is that there's these tremendous discussions of how horrified and shocked people would be, yet if you uh, conduct surveys of people asking them, what do you think? Large proportion think that there's something out there. (laughs) But the basic assumption in most of SETI is that what would be detected is evidence of technological activity, that we wouldn't really find out much about this other civilization, not without a lot of work. And so there'd be this knowledge that they're out there, but there are scenarios or ways to look at it whereby you might learn quite a bit about E.T., and this would be very likely to have a massive impact on us uh, psychologically, societally, and culturally. The difference between my earlier book, After Contact, and my new book, Starstruck, is a new book focuses much more on uh, how people are thinking about these things presently, and it it does depart from strictly uh, scientific belief. It gets into religious belief, popular beliefs, uh, wishes, superstition, these kinds of things. But one of the chapters in Starstruck reports on a meeting uh, which was held a few years ago that's never been discussed in public before. And in this meeting, what we did was a fine-grained analysis of what might happen. And what I mean by that is our reaction to the discovery will depend on such things as how rapidly we learn about it. You know, is it a slow, dawning realization versus a sudden insight? How we perceive the uh, other, so to speak, and a whole host of other kinds of things. So what we're trying to do now is think much more complexly and and differentiate different kinds of contact scenarios and how different people and different cultures are likely to react.
1: I guess certainly with the popular culture expansion of this particular idea, do you think it would be actually quite so shocking were we to discover extraterrestrial?
2: Oh, there's there's people who believe that that they're here. You can find (laughs) websites, uh, UFO websites. I'm I'm not going to name any because... And I'm doing this part from uh, memory that uh, just start out by saying, well, what we know is that there's lots of different species in the universe. You know about Earth and they've traveled here. You know, that's, that's a big leap from the hypothesis that other life forms might exist and some of these might, might achieve intelligence. My interest in this, there's a, a very clear division between scientists who do astrobiology and SETI and people who are interested in UFOs it's not intelligence it's not all kinds of things what it does reflect is uh, different ways of looking at the world different standards for evaluating information different procedures for evaluating information there's a shared interest in the possibility of life out there but if you look at it in popular culture uh, people have sort of jumped ahead of the data run ahead of the facts and drawn these conclusions which are not safe at all to, to draw the scientists study scientists astrobiologists try very, very hard to maintain a distinction between their efforts and the kind of work that's done by ufologists. Ufologists, on the other hand, absolutely embrace some of the ideas of the astrobiologists and SETI astronomers because it tends to support their belief in extraterrestrial life. So it's it's an interesting kind of a situation. When I wrote After Contact, I did have one chapter on UFOs called False Alarms. The most negative comment I got about my book The one that I remember best was that I included that chapter, and this was a great disservice to science. My belief is that people's beliefs about life out there, whatever they're based on, are very important to understand as a cultural and psychological phenomena, and they're going to have quite an impact if and when ET is ever discovered. So what I do is I march off into the areas such as um, abductions, UFOs, religion, parallels between religion and and some of the kinds of ideas you hear about, E.T., and just plain jump in whole hog in Starstruck, whereas my earlier work was an attempt to stay very much within the SETI and astrobiology paradigms.
1: So is that, in your sense, very important to try and understand people's motivations and ideas?
2: Well, what what I think is that we have to understand where different people are coming from in order to understand their reactions to new scientific kinds of discoveries, okay? and that if you have somebody who believes that E.T. has been visiting here for thousands of years, that E.T. crashed in Roswell, that the government's hiding it from us, and these kinds of things, that person's reaction uh, might be quite a bit different from somebody else who's saying, well, hmm, this is an interesting hypothesis, but so far, no smoking gun. So I'm trying to look at the overall pattern of thinking about our place in the universe, looking at similarities and differences, comparing people with the scientific point of view, those with a more of a religious point of view, and those with view that seems to incorporate some elements of science, some elements of fiction, and some, some elements of wish. Because what we have out here is uh, sort of brainstorming <laughs> on who we are, what we're doing here, and what else might, might be out there. So how do
1: these inform the third aspect you mentioned, space exploration?
2: Space exploration simply ties in. However, I think there's some very interesting aspects of space exploration. I have done quite a bit of work related to human spaceflight, very much involved in that, and say it actually takes up most of my time. There's quite a few people out there who believe that there are religious aspects to space exploration and travel, if you talk, for example, to the Smithsonian curator, Roger Lonius sees it as almost a religious kind of uh, activity. If you talk to some theologians, well, let me give you, give you an example. We rise from the earth in great fiery arcs to seek perfection in the skies. We send the best people up there to represent us. The right stuff, people of unquestionable qualities and moral character, fortitude, what have you. This has been reflected since the earliest days of space exploration when the original Mercury astronauts talked about their religion right through religious practices and some of the shuttle missions and things right to today. There's a gentleman by the name of Hoffman uh, who I describe in my book who's very much interested in setting up missionary service company space travelers and to work with et this is a religion coming in whole hog saying here we can be involved in space exploration we can provide you with intestinal fortitude as you go beyond your home planet and uh, we can help you work with extraterrestrial cultures when you encounter them after all you know we're used to going around the world and dealing with very different kinds of people so even though space exploration seems far removed from spirituality and science in fact there are those aspects Uh, NASA knows this and it understands it and uses it to good effect. Think about some of those wonderful, wonderful pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope and and how awesome they are and how inspiring. So these are the kinds of issues that I try to explore. And it's not easy because there's a lot of different things out there and they don't always uh, fit together in nice little packages.
1: Do any of these issues really play into NASA when they decide who's going to go on a mission or who works on a mission?
2: Well... It's become less openly so the very overt Christianity and expressed beliefs of some of the early astronauts, the German rocket scientists that held sway, uh, the idea of chapels of the astronauts. That kind of stuff has been eclipsed somewhat in uh, recent years. Uh, I don't address this in the book, but what you have to understand about NASA in terms of selection training is that essentially there's been about 40 years of neglect of psychological kinds of factors, a hiatus of research, from Project Mercury up until about 10 years ago when certain events, namely space station missions, forced NASA to look at some things. And to my knowledge, uh, spirituality would not be one of the selection criteria. It's a very interesting, complicated kind of a situation where basically the role of psychology and psychiatrists in the space program has been one of identifying people to select out, to not send on a mission. And only since the 1980s or so has there been good ongoing research on how to help select astronauts in a positive way and provide them with support and do the kinds of research, actually, uh, that's of real service to them in space. So things are improving here. But remember, it's the uh, scientific and engineering mentality and the government administrative mentality uh, that rule at NASA.
1: Uh, don't you think this will become more of an issue as if, indeed, humans have extended space flights, even a mission to Mars? Think
2: yes, that's out. absolutely oh. true. Since about 1971, many psychologists, psychiatrists, and others have argued this. And right now I'm working on a paper with a, with a friend who works with astronauts. and We think the turning point came in the 1990s. In the 1970s, we set up Skylab, and then we went on with the shuttle. The Russians went in a very different path. The Russians set up a series of space stations. Skylab was a very short experiment. Uh, Questions about space stations were very salient to the Russians, not to the Americans. Once that Astronauts joined cosmonauts on the Mir space station. These issues became salient. A number of astronauts spoke out about such things as loneliness, depression, difficulty with cross-cultural relations and communications and so forth. And this led to some events in the late 1990s and going on right this minute, as a matter of fact, so that uh, it is becoming more of an interest in the U.S. space program. And about three years ago, I put on a conference for NASA where we looked at ways to try to not only energize this kind of research, but to bring research and operations closer in line. Now research goes in one direction. What they need is something else. Of course, it's a long continuing battle, but you're absolutely correct. They're looking at what they call the exploration class missions. They're going to have to address these problems or issues. But the problem's not quite right. I don't want to perpetuate the view that psychology only deals with negative, nasty things, because we don't.
1: So do you think there's a shift in the attitude at NASA, or do you think it will take to have this shift?
2: Okay, there's, there's several things. First of all, it has to be perceived as a real issue, uh, not one that people can somehow solve by willpower. If they can do that for about a month, if you're talking six months, you've got to provide them with greater support. That's one thing. Second thing is, and, and, and here are the balls in psychology support, is it's up to us in psychology, psychiatry, fields like this, to demonstrate that we actually have something worthwhile that we can do that would be a benefit in selecting astronauts, in providing them with support, okay? And then the third thing, if you want to do the right kind of research, which is research involving astronauts themselves, you have to set it up in such a way that it's enjoyable to them and in absolutely no way whatsoever threatens their flight qualifications. And these are this, this, this is a pretty big fall order, but a lot of people are working on it, and it does appear that there's some progress. For example, uh, right now there's a project going on on the space station where some volunteers, I'm not sure if the current inhabitants are, are volunteering for this, are keeping written diaries in an attempt to identify things that go well, that don't go so well, that could be improved. So, yeah, it's, uh, the shift is generally positive. NASA, however, is highly political. It's very much subject to changes in public perceptions and congress there's a lot of organization reorganization that goes on it's almost perpetual so if you look at the last 10 years and say gee yeah some of this kind of research is going on uh, may may not be going on five years from now but certainly a number of psychologists are trying to make the, the case for this kind of research
1: So what do you see as the direction for merging our various beliefs?
2: I think we're in a position where there's just enough discoveries that almost everything seems possible that people can make of them what they want, make claims and and believe these things. And what will happen is science progresses, we'll gain more and more evidence, and some of the uh, beliefs will prove true, others will be proven wrong, or turn out to be flaky, new age, you know, whatever the skeptics want to call them. And uh, very, very slowly we'll triangulate on a much better idea of where we are in the universe and its uh, implications for us as organisms and as a culture. So time will tell. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see then. (laughs) I hope I could wait long enough to see. (laughs) All right. Well,
1: Professor Harrison, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show and talking about your book, Starstruck.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity and it's a delight to talk to you.
1: And you were just listening to Professor Albert Harrison discussing science, religion, and folklore. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 plus the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. My sweet lord,
2: mm, my lord, mm, my lord.
1: Ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000. It's, of course, the supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, starstruck or grounded? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they starstruck or grounded? Professor Harrison, you ready to play a game?
2: Ready.
1: Okay, here we go. Person number one, Michael Jackson.
2: Starstruck. Okay, he's new age. But that's the quick answer. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> uh, number two is Oprah Winfrey.
2: I see her as, as grounded, actually. I see her being very effective in dealing with, when I, watch, when I see her show, dealing with the practical problems of everyday people, and that tends to suggest to me that she's uh, not particularly um, theoretical, but she may be inquisitive. So my level of certainty on this answer is, is, is really dicey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right,
1: number three is John Glenn.
2: John Glenn is actually may strike you as strange, but I'm going to say that he's grounded. He may have been starstruck once, but he he comes from a very tough science orientation. He's been an effective uh, politician, and uh, I would say he's grounded, even though uh, he seems like an obvious for starstruck. Hmm. Uh, number four is Tiger Woods. Hitting a ball into orbit town. <laughs> sure here. I really have no idea, so I'll have to guess, and I'll say that I'd say he's grounded. Okay. <laughs>
1: All right. And finally, number five, the president of the United States, George Bush.
2: Well, in my book, I get into parallel universes and dimensions. I'm not really sure. I would have to say, actually, that I think he's starstruck because he did authorize the Space Exploration mission, uh, one of the few presidents for space exploration and travel. Again, I, I feel nervous and incompetent. Uh but he did actually uh endorse more efforts on the part of NASA to get us to the moon and Mars. So I I guess I'd say Starstruck.
1: Okay, well I guess that's uh that's a good thing at least. Uh all right, well uh, Professor Harrison, I I do want to thank you for sticking around and playing our game and again of course talking about your book, Starstruck.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. A lot yep. of fun. Bye.
1: Yes, Calaris. You come with all of your questions, wondering who is he, what is he, and what is the genotype well, it's the composition of all the genes in the organism that make up its characteristic.
0: And now the question of the week, I'm automatic, like a cellulite, a cellular automata, but what is it? If you know, or I think you know, email us at grox at dot com. You won't win anything, but you might just play the game of life. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. And
0: if you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.